The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, international action from Canada to Clanlevny Town. Afghan quarterfinals. Cameron's biggest football deciders since David tried to remember Villa or West Ham. Canada heading for a second World Cup. Can they score a goal this time? Plus transfers. Adama goodbyes, Bruno Gumarish, Luis Diaz and Luis Oli Tanner. It's all in another busy Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, everybody. It's uh, ooh, final day of January here in Totally Football Show Land 31st. And we're joined by an all star cast featuring Tom Williams. Hello, Tom. Hello, James. Also with us, Charlie Eccleshare. Hi, James. Hi, Charlie. And on the line from actual Cameroon, Daniel Story. Good morning, James. Good morning to you, Daniel. There in your sultry, far off football experience land. Mm, yes, indeed. Sultry yeah. for sure. Excellent. How's it going so far? Yeah, really well. Um, no hiccups with admin. We've uh, I've moved from Douala to, to the capital, Yayunde, and we found out last night on Sunday evening that every game is also being moved here with us. So we get to stay in Yayunde for the full week. Brilliant news. Brilliant news. We'll have a big headlines coming up from uh, AFCON and the, the weekend there. Uh, Tom, you also had a sultry football experience in a far-off land, going to football at the Four Crosses Construction Arena in Colwyn Bay. Yeah, it wasn't just Daniel uh, jetting off to, uh, as you say, exotic exotic climbs. I was in uh, I was in North Wales to watch Colwyn Bay, uh, who'd been absolutely flying of late. They put six past Llanidloes Town the weekend before. They were mm. playing lowly Llangevny Town um, at home as well. Bumper crowd, 680 people there. All the ingredients for a goal fest, and it was with crashing inevitability, nil-nil, uh, despite Colwyn Bay dominating the game from start to finish. But an enjoyable afternoon out, all the same. All right, excellent. How does that leave things poised in the checks notes for the league name? So they are in the they're in the Cymru North, James, as I'm sure as I'm sure you were aware, which is the the second tier of the Welsh league system. Only one team goes up per season. Uh, so the Bay are, are doing well, but they're miles off. Of first place, so just you know, hoping to get into the get into the Europa League, perhaps uh, something like that. Oh, seriously? No, no. Ah, I don't actually right. know whether there are any benefits to finishing second over finishing Conference seventh, League, for example. Even even Conference League. I mean, given it's not the top tier, I I, th- I think European European qualification is probably a distant dream. Yeah. It's only their second division in the league since they since they left the English league pyramid. So it's all still fresh and new and exciting. All right, it certainly is. There you go, Daniel. You're not the only one with uh, exciting travellers' tales to uh, recount this this week. But uh, uh, let's start with uh, one of the big games that you went to uh, this weekend, which was that North African derby, Egypt against Morocco. Three goals, 39 fouls, was it? A 22-man dust-up as well. How much did you enjoy this? Yeah, it was it was stereotypical, kind of fair from, from these two teams there were moments of quality in the game but after each one it was as if the players kind of gave each other looks and agreed that that was fairly poor form and they should get back to the main serious business of of winding each other up and fouling (laughs) each other yeah 39 fouls as you say that was just in the 90 minutes as well and we had extra time as well um 
But yeah, I mean, ultimately, Mohamed Salah was the difference. We, we've kind of been waiting for him to be the difference in a, in a match in this tournament. He he's he had scored once, but he, he Egypt had just kind of left him isolated, and, and Carlos Kirish's gospel of defensive football had had left Salah kind of grasping it. Form in the tournament, and eventually he, he he kind of grabbed that ball by the horns and did it himself. Because Egypt were were they lost their heads in the first half. They were poor. They dragged Morocco down. So both sides were just you know it was a dismal second half. And then Salah changed the game. Magnificent. Uh, they're going to be facing. Is it Thursday? They're going to be facing the host Cameroon, whose two 0 victory over the Gambia. You also went along to. Yeah, I mean that that was the incredible atmosphere. Uh, Morocco Egypt was was you know riotous on the pitch, but uh, a fairly sparse crowd. Whereas I mean the Cameroon game was almost literally deafening, uh, and there is a, a you know there's a huge in, in obsession and infatuation with with the national team in this tournament, largely because the public didn't think they'd win it, and that I mean that semi final is going to be huge because they love the national team, they love Mohamed Salah as this kind of leader of African football and yeah it's going to be an astonishing atmosphere on, on Thursday and it's also going to be in in the Alembe Stadium which for the first time since since the stadium crush in Cameroon's last game there so yeah there's it's a very loaded match for for a number of reasons. Mm. Both goals for Cameroon scored on this occasion by Toto Cambi who Tom you'll be familiar with for his work at Lyon. Yes, um, he was rather cruelly saddled with the nickname Carl Poto Ekambi uh, a couple of years back. Poto being the French word for post, um, because when Leon reached the Champions League semis in 2020 in Lisbon, he was one of the key players, but he missed a very presentable chance against Bayern Munich uh, in the semi-final, uh, hitting a, hitting the post, uh, and within I think seconds, Bayern scored their first goal and ended up running away with it and he he's not he's not always the most polished finisher uh, but a really really talented player um, you know sort of rangy can play wide can play through the middle two-footed decent in the air and, and really valuable to Leon at the moment because they've got lots of quite samey players Leon lots of sort of small very technical not particularly pacey playmakers so someone like Tokoe Kambi is, is really crucial for them in terms of stretching the play. Um, and yeah, clearly having a great tournament uh, for the hosts. Five goals now. Uh, I think him and Vincent Abubakar have, have scored all of Cameroon's uh, 11 goals. Um, but uh, yeah, good to see him having a good tournament. It's interesting with Cameroon. I was talking with a former player of theirs about this and he was saying often an issue that Cameroon have had but other African countries as well as they have had, and you see this with Egypt a bit, a couple of superstars and then the rest of the team not really matching up to that, and that can cause a bit of an imbalance. Whereas this Cameroon team, he was saying, there probably isn't, you know, there isn't like an Eto of of years gone by, um, but maybe there is a bit more balance, and that could uh, actually lead to success for them at this tournament. When on paper, you do look at them and think, oh, that's a far cry from those those days where they were really fancied with guys like Eto and Song, but never, well, certainly at World Cups, never really delivered. Daniel, would you say that they are the strongest team looking at the squad? Or is it Senegal who you think maybe have the best lineup of players? Yeah, I think Senegal have, have the best squad in the tournament by, by a long distance. Uh, you know, I did a preview for their, their game, which they, they won last night on Sunday evening. And you know, I think there are 26 players at this tournament for, for all countries 
combined who play for teams in the top three of a, of a major European league or one of those top five European leagues. And Senegal I think, provide maybe, I think it's nine of the 26 who are in Senegal's squad alone, which is remarkable. You know, you look at the defence, which has conceded one goal and it's got a Chelsea goalkeeper, a Bayern Munich defender, an Napoli defender, a Paris Saint-Germain defender. And there's nothing like that else in the tournament. Uh, so they should win. But Cameroon, you know, they do feel, and, and African football does this a lot, they, they, they really believe in this idea of something building and growing and kind of snowballing. And that's what, what they think is happening with this Cameroon team. And they don't have any superstars, but, but Vincent you know, Abucho, Abubakai is, um, yeah, he's becoming, you know, a new Etu, a new uh, Roger Mia, because he, he's already scored a winner in one AFCON final and they believe he might do the same this year. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Exciting news on Merseyside last week as the wheel finally stopped spinning on Everton's search for a new manager. The needle pointing to Frank Lampard. All right, Frank Lampard, everybody. Did Everton get the right guy? Can supporters who were protesting last week at the lack of joined-up thinking, can they feel confident about this choice? Well, I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? It mm. feels like a, it feels like a, a, a bit of a gamble for for both sides of this arrangement. In that Everton are recruiting a very high-profile but still unproven manager uh, in in Frank Lampard, and and Frank Lampard, who is, I suppose, trying to rebuild his reputation uh, to, to an extent um, after. His, his time at Chelsea was, was curtailed so abruptly, is walking into a, a football club that looks a little bit like a bit of a basket case club um, in, in terms of the decisions they've been making. Um, so it, you know, it, it's not a, it, it doesn't feel a, a perfectly natural fit. Um, but, you know, I guess after, after the, the slightly unedifying spectacle of, of Everton casting around uh, in... in slightly confused fashion for a new manager at least they have now got someone who the fans will have all heard of and they can at least draw a line beneath beneath the um uh, beneath the the unhappy times of the Benitez era and, and and hope for a hope for a new manager bounce I mean I think for that La- it's interesting what you say there about um it not being an ideal sort of situation for either which which I, I guess is true but for Lampard I don't feel like he could get a club at a much higher level than Everton. I, I appreciate they're in a bit of a mess, but that's in a way always going to be the case if you get a job mid-season. But I feel for mm. him it's quite a good level of club. You know, I, do, I don't think anyone anywhere close to Chelsea was really going to go for him. And that's, that's not, that sounds like a slight on him, which I guess it is, but I don't think anyone's under any illusions that he got the Chelsea job you know, because he had those associations and in inverted commas got uh, the club. So I think uh, it's, a, it, it's a, a good opportunity for him and there will inevitably be comparisons with his former midfield partner, Steven Gerrard, and what he's mm. done at Aston Villa. Yeah, although devastatingly, no games with Villa on the horizon. They've already played them uh, twice and there's no chance of them meeting the FA Cup either. So have to have to wait for that particular uh, reunion uh, it, it, potentially it's a good time for him to be signing with Everton as well. It, in the same way that David Moyes going to Man United after Sir Alex Ferguson had left was the worst possible bit of timing. Joining Everton after the kind of failed dalliance with the manager recently fired by a Super League club, it, 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 you're probably hailed as a bit with a bit of relief by supporters, no? As you say, Tom, this one we've heard of. But the, with the squad, we, we were talking last week about their predicament, four points off the drop. Are you confident that he can 
steady the ship, etc., and so on? I'm I'm still pretty worried for them. I mean, if if Lampard had a an issue at Chelsea, or the issue that ultimately caused his downfall was that they struggled to create chances. And his solution to that was to push more and more players forward until Chelsea got caught on the break. Now, if you look at Everton this season, they've they've struggled to create chances. And seemingly that Rafa Benitez's solution was to try and push more men forward to do that. And Everton got caught on the break. So Sounds like a perfect marriage. Yeah, one one of those parties is going to have to change. And I think it probably has to be Lampard because he's he's... We don't really know what to expect of him. The, the, the positive spin is that he, he's got a clean slate and we, we don't really know what a Frank Lampard team is yet. The negative spin is that we don't really know what a Frank Lampard team <laughs> is yet and Everton need a bit of certainty. Do we not have a view on what a Frank Lampard team is from his time at, at Derby or that the, the, the first season at Chelsea? Well, I mean, this is one of, the, one of the things I found the most interesting about his time at Chelsea was that he, he, he talked a lot about the sort of football he wanted to see. He wanted to see aggressive front foot football. He wanted to see pressing. He wanted to, to see a team who imposed themselves on their opponents. But you you didn't always see that. And, and something that struck me quite a lot, and I, I covered a few Chelsea games during that period, was that Chelsea would often press quite aggressively. But as soon as their opponents managed to play through the first press, there'd just be enormous holes you know, huge spaces to be exploited. And, and I, I, I got the sense that although he had ideas about what he wanted to see, he perhaps wasn't entirely sure about how to put that in, into place mm. uh, on the pitch. And you, you, got the, you got the sense that he was slightly frustrated by that, that you know, there, was, there was this vision of what he wanted to see and then there was a gap between that and, and what was actually taking shape. And I think that the sort of football that he... You know that, that that you occasionally saw from Chelsea, that you occasionally saw from Derby, is the sort of football that I think Everton fans will will respond well to. It is sort of up and at them football, in your face football, which is you know which is what you tend to associate with successful Everton teams. But I guess the question is, has he, you know, has has he learnt during his time time away from the game? You know how to put those ideas into place, and you you look at the very immediate impact that, that Steven Gerrard's had at Aston Villa, and of course we're not obliged to compare Lampard to Gerrard constantly, but we we nonetheless do, and we nonetheless always will because that is the narrative. And I think the fact that Gerrard has made such a successful start at Villa means that there will be very close attention on on Lampard's early steps because I think in in you know in the modern age when you appoint a big name manager, you expect them to have a, a pretty immediate impact. So I think I think these first few weeks for Lampard will be very important and very telling. Mm, they begin under Frank Lampard with uh, Brentford in the FA Cup fourth round. That's uh, this coming Saturday, Daniel. I'd say the other thing to mention is that, that, that it's very hard to divvy out the praise and, and criticism with a manager and assistant manager. But, but Lampard and Jody Morris were very much a team at, at Derby and Chelsea. And, and Morris isn't, by all accounts, going to be joining him at Everton. So, again, that you know, you could look at that two ways. That either provides opportunity for him to kind of, you know, plot his own course through this. But Morris was was very hands-on at both those clubs, especially on the training ground. So that's that's a risk from Everton, I think, to kind of break up that partnership. Next up, with it being the 31st of January today, listener, let's get some deadline day news and much more. Well, listeners, if ever there was need of proof that graffiti is still very influential in the modern day, one just needs to look at Everton Football Club. During the week, fans had spray-painted Pereira out in Lampard Inn on the wall outside Goodison. 
Seems the decision makers at the Toffees were given food for thought by the fans. The appointment of ex-Liverpool boss Rafa Benitez hurt them. Frank Lampard was a Premier League star for sure and showed signs that he may well be cut out for management when he steered Derby to the Championship playoff final in 2019. Then that summer, Lampard answered Roman's call and came in to replace the off to Juve Maurizio Sarri. Lampard himself has been out of work for the best part of a year since Roman made him walk the plank. It's hard to put your finger on how well he did during his time at Stamford Bridge as after a solid first year operating with the transfer embargo, he led them to Champions League qualification. Then when he was finally allowed to get the blank checkbook out, he was unable to get a tune out of his star-studded squad. But credit where credit is due, he did unearth and integrate several of the club's academy stars who went on to taste Champions League success under Tuchel. As risky appointments go, listeners, this is up there. The Toffees lie in 16th place in the table, four points from safety, and are a 9-2 shot to get relegated. So the penny pair traders see Everton under Lampard as having more than enough to protect their top flight status. If you fancy the Toffees for a top 10 finish, you can get them at a tasty 10 to 1, and you'll get 25 to 1 on them lifting the FA Cup, although they have a tricky looking tie at Goodison Park with Brentford next Saturday. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org and remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Today, 31st of January, deadline day, is the 11 year anniversary of probably the greatest deadline day ever in Premier League terms when Andy Carroll and Luis Suarez signed for Liverpool with Fernando Torres going to Chelsea for what was then a, a record 50 million quaint quaint times <laughs> 11 years on where are they Suarez is that Atletico as you probably know Andy Carroll's just signed for West Brom from Reading and uh, ooh, have you seen Fernando Torres of late mm. he is looking absolutely yeah, dense ripped yes yeah uh, quite remarkable. Anyway, that's that. What about today? We don't know what's going to happen today, obviously, but what's been done so far, as I say, it's been quite dramatic uh, with, with, first off, some really bad news for right-backs across the Premier League, uh, potentially, with the arrival of Luis Diaz at Liverpool. Mm. Mm. Very exciting signing, that, yeah. And obviously, one where Spurs thought they had a shot and then it was taken away from them. But, yeah, he... Um, he does look very, very exciting. Um, yeah, kind of cutting in from that left-hand side onto his right foot. He's got an eye for the spectacular. He scored so many amazing goals already this season. And there was that one against City uh, that was last season, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, so that looks like being, yeah, one that could make a massive difference to them with a front three. Well, obviously, Jota's come in as well and really shaken things up as well. But the kind of traditional front three that they've had for the last few years... Uh, all of their contracts expire at the end of next season, so that they do start, they do need to start having a succession plan, and this looks like a really, really exciting one. Daniel, on a, on a scale of naught to ten, where ten would be Luis Suarez, and naught probably I don't know Kim Kallstrom or something like that. How big a January signing do you think this is going to be? Well, it's a statement signing for sure, because we were told heading into January that that not to expect much business from Liverpool and not to expect much business from, from any of the, the big six or, or certainly the title challengers. But but what Liverpool have, have proven over the last three, four years and, and probably to the extent of, of Klopp's reign is that 
they are prepared to seize upon opportunity. And they realised that, that Tottenham were were in for Luis Diaz. They realised that there was going to be some competition and they realised that, that as things stand, they are in a, a position to promise players rapid improvement under a, a fantastic manager and a, a very solid foundation, which um, at least one of which Tottenham are, are not really able to offer at the moment and, and not many clubs are. So Klopp has always done this. He's always been prepared to, to jump and, and for all the criticism ever of FSG, when he's wanted to jump, they've backed him. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a fantastic signing. Of, of course it is. Um, it, it, most importantly is that he has enough time to settle because if Luis Diaz in, in six months' time, exactly the same with Grealish at Manchester City, if it doesn't go well, it, it doesn't mean it's a failure. It doesn't mean it's a flop. It means that he's being able to bide his time because there are fantastic options around him. Mm, 25 years of age. This season has been, he was really caught our eye, particularly in the Champions League, but this season has been a, a, truly a breakout one for Diaz. Uh, he's got 14 goals and five assists in 18 league games for Porto, ranks top in the Primera Liga for goals, shots and touches in the opposition box. He's currently off with Colombia. Uh, they're taking on Argentina in, on Tuesday in a crucial uh, Comibol World Cup qualifier. We'll, t- we'll talk about those a bit later on, actually. Sorry, Charlie. No, I mean, it is amazing, his improvement. I was talking to Tom Kunda, who um, follows Portugal. He's based in Portugal and follows very closely, writes for World Soccer and others. And he was saying he can't remember a player improving from one season to the next at the rate that Diaz has. I mean, he's he's always been good, but he's come in this season. And those numbers that you say are extraordinary. And and in a way, they don't do justice to, to use an Arsene Wengerism, the spectacularity of some of those moments. You know, they are there are just so many crazy goals in there he because he can go both ways as well I mean he likes to cut in and hit it on his right but he can go on the outside so it's so so difficult for defenders to deal with him and, and having someone that explosive it is um it is exciting for the Premier League as, as much as you know teams aren't going to enjoy it if he's destroying them but he you know it is fun having those kind of attacking players in, in the league I think the challenge for Jurgen Klopp in the short term is going to be how to manage all these players because in terms of long-term succession planning, having brought Diogo Jota in when he did, having now brought Luis Diaz in, you're no longer as worried as you might have been about what that Liverpool attack looks like post the Salah, Mane, Firmino age. But with all five of them still at the club, Mm. obviously you know Salah is having the season of his life. Mane remains very much a main man. Jota has, has, has clearly stood on a march on Firmino but then you know we've seen in recent weeks Firmino coming back into the team and, and, and doing Roberto Firmino things and reminding us all what a, what a wonderful footballer he is Luis Diaz would, would appear to be the long-term successor to Mane on, on that left-hand side but how right. how quickly does that succession take place mm-hmm. and, and, and if it doesn't take place immediately which let's face it it probably won't you know, can you keep him happy giving him bits of games here and there? Obviously, you've got the cup competitions, you've got you know the Champions League as well, but it's it's an interesting dynamic. I mean, you know, I don't think any Liverpool fan will be particularly worried about it, but from Klopp's perspective, it is something he'll have to he'll have to manage quite uh, quite sensitively. In my binary kind of Fisher Prize football tactics world, um, I've got <laughs> I've got this one down as Mane's potential replacement whenever that happens, and Jota he he takes the Firmino role if you're going to maintain that that triumvirate. But just briefly, where are we now on Mo Salah and the prospect of him deciding to seek fresh challenges? Klopp said that he's confident Mo will be staying, but that is one player who 
you really will struggle to replace? Well, he, they are no closer. The, the situation hasn't changed in any way. Mohamed Salah has, has effectively three times said almost identical things, which is the club know what it takes. The club know want to what I, you know. The club know I want to stay, and the club know effectively the ball lies in their court. Um, I suppose now. Klopp slash FSG might think that having Luis Diaz A is a a statement of intent and B gives them a a slightly more um, leverage in negotiations with Salah in that maybe he might feel slightly less irreplaceable if they've they've got other options Um, but every single Liverpool fan clearly wants Mohamed Salah to stay they, they were placed in a difficult position by the pandemic because Liverpool, I think, would have been prepared to sell at absolutely top whack in the summer of 2020, as they did with with Philip Coutinho, um, due to the, the you know the age profile of Salah. But the market deflated at exactly the wrong time for them for that, and it, it's left a contract running out, and and them really not wanting to lose a player for free. And and they're not the only ones. You know, the top seven in the Ballon d'Or last year are all out of contract at the same time, which is next at the end of next season, and it's going to be a yeah fascinating kind of count down until then. Can we have a quick word on players who turned down Spurs this week? Uh, (laughs) Amongst their numbers, Have we got enough time for that, James? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, tell me about Oli Tanner of uh, Isthmian League's Lewis, who stayed there rather than join up with Tottenham Hotspur. Well, this is quite an interesting one. And the an official word from him and his camp is that what he was being offered just wasn't uh that the terms weren't to his liking but obviously this is muddied massively because he has a history on social media i mean he's an arsenal fan which is in a way neither here nor there spurs have signed arsenal fans before darren bent matt doherty etc but the main the main uh sticking point or kind of issue that fans have is that there are there are uh, post he's unmocking Harry Kane um, and this sort of thing in in quite a cruel, uh, not very edifying way, and and this sort of surfaced once the links with Tanner uh, were first reported by the Athletics Andy Naylor, and you know a lot of Tottenham Twitter were up in arms and saying we you know we don't want this kind of person at our club, and you know how is Harry Kane going to feel about that? You know that this isn't really on. Um, so I think in their eyes. Uh, or in some of their eyes, anyway, this came a sort of untenable situation and Tanner was aware that he would be walking into a pretty complicated situation. But, you know, from there, from Tanner's camp's perspective anyway, they, they said the terms uh, weren't to their liking. But it, it was a pretty uh, strange and, uh, you know, I, I think there was quite a lot of gallows humour amongst, or some Spurs fans I know, you know, hot on the heels of Diaz and Triore, that this was the kind of, <laughs> I mean, it was already in their eyes, not exactly the signing they'd been dreaming about all window, but then the fact that he was sort of turning them down felt like, yeah, the crowning turd in the water pipe, to use a line from Blackadder. But I mean, luckily, as, as far as Oli Tanner is concerned, there is recent precedent for Spurs signing a player uh, who was previously on record as a hater of Spurs uh, on social media, um, in Matt Doherty, who, you know, turned things around as, and has become a Spurs legend uh, who is <laughs> adored by all the fans and whose presence in the starting eleven uh, is always greeted uh, with thumbs up all round. So, you know, there are ways of, of working through this. Yeah, he certainly made the Arsenal thing feel like an irrelevance. 
you know, I, I don't think that's the, that that's kind of high on Spurs fans' gripes with Matt Doherty anymore. So yeah, he's, he's shown you can move on from it. Excellent. All right. Well, racing through our list of players who didn't go to Spurs, uh, of course, as you mentioned, Adama Traore, who instead signed up with Barcelona. Another signing by the increasingly inventive Catalans, Fran Torres, previously joining from Manchester City, and Dani Alves returning as well. Ooh, Mikey Barra pointing out on Twitter that with Martin Braithwaite already on Barca's books, they are now just one Brit Asomba Longa away from recreating Barra's front three from 2017-18. <laughs> Brit Asomba Longa, who is currently playing up front with Mario Balotelli in Turkey Indeed. and pulling up trees together. Yeah. So it could happen. <laughs> All right. Well, so uh, well, th- this was a shame for anyone who's enjoyed his performances in the the Premier League at Damatrayori. It'll be exciting to see how he fits in with with uh, with Xavi's Barca. For those of us wondering how Barca are doing all this, Charlie, can you shed any light on that? Well, that, that I mean, that they have done pretty well out of this because Spurs were always fancy to, to to get this signing over the line eventually, but there were negotiations because Tottenham was suggesting a loan and then you know ideally an option rather than an obligation. Uh, but Wolves were holding out. His contract expires at uh, the end of next season. So, you know, that th- they were really pushing for the sale because they didn't want him to come back with only a year left on his contract when his value is going to be massively uh, devalued. But Barca were able to get this deal over the line. And I think it, it, it does feel like a pretty good option for them because there was some hesitancy at Spurs. I mean, they, they wanted to play him as a right wing back. Um, and obviously, a loan, therefore, would have been ideal because you've almost, you've got half a season to see if this works. If it turns out to be a crazy idea and it's not really doable, then uh, he he goes back and, and you just move on from it. So I think Barca have done pretty well out of this. I mean, I know there was some surprise uh, from some who cover Wolves closely that the fact that they had managed to get this loan with the option rather than the obligation or just a straight signing because it does feel a bit having their cake and eat it and and I think you know from a Spurs perspective it is I don't think they were devastated about it because there were some who had their doubts as well but just personally I would have been really intrigued to see how he he would have done as a right wing back under Conte obviously Victor Moses being the name that jumps out at everyone (laughs) as someone who who had a similar conversion very very successfully with Conte and for those of us who'd spent quite a lot of time Speaking to people, doing research as to whether Traore could make it as a right wing back at Spurs, there was some devastation when um, that piece <laughs> had to be chucked in the bin. I must admit. Well, keep it on file because you never know. You never, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what he could have done as a right wing back had he yeah. joined Tottenham. Uh, Spurs did come through with some signings though uh, at the end of last week. A couple of Juve midfielders, uh, thanks to the. Their transfer department's old connections, essentially. Uh, we've got Kulosevsky and uh, Bentancur. Perhaps more excitingly, actually. Kulosevsky was wildly underused at Juve. Yeah, I mean, what, what's your, as a, you know, you'll know this better than anyone, James. What's your view on these two? I mean, I, I feel reasonably optimistic, but um, yeah, what's your sense? So Kulosevsky was a really exciting player coming through Atlanta, did amazingly well with Parma, and then uh, I thought he was going to do well at, at Juventus too, uh, but Allegri just didn't fancy him at all. I think he it, possibly had 10 starts, maybe not that many this year. Not and that many really, in the league. Is it not? Even okay. Fewer. But really struggled, I think, to, to, to find a role in the team. Quite often mm. brought on really for the last five minutes of games or something. He would be sometimes fielded out left instead of uh, Chiesa. I think the more 
possibly the, the, the bigger loss from Juve's point of view is Bentancur, who's a tremendously dynamic and hardworking box-to-box midfielder and I, I think was a big part of what Allegri was doing. I think he's the kind of player who fits in well with what Conte does or what Conte expects from his his team. But I mean, we'll we'll see. I guess. I mean, do the pair of them add up to an Adama Traore? Quite possibly, yes. I mean, I, I'm still very confused as to what an Adama Traore does for your team, apart from add a kind of a zany, to borrow your term, Charlie, an incredible zany X factor to to any ongoing match. I think Adama Traore is one of the most exciting players in the world, and that's not hyperbole. I mean, if you watching him in the flesh in particular, he is absolutely electrifying, and I can't think of any players who have the same ability to pick up the ball in in deep areas and beat four or five players, um, you know, in in the in the blink of an eye, um, and pop up on the edge of the opposition penalty area. That, of course, traditionally is when things have tended to go less successfully, and you know, people endlessly. Uh, flag up his uh, his his slightly underwhelming uh, stats when it comes to goals and assists, but I I think he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's jaw droppingly good sometimes. I remember I was at Molyneux the season that Liverpool won the title, uh, and it was like an evening game, and he absolutely tore mm. them to pieces. I don't mm. think Andy Robertson has had a more difficult game uh, in his entire career. He was brilliant, um, and Klopp called is, him unplayable that night. He did, yeah, and and plenty of managers have, and it, you know he's a real curate's egg of a footballer, and you, you kind of you feel that if all of that potential was unleashed, um, you'd be looking at an absolute phenomenon of a footballer. You know, will we ever see that? Is going to Barcelona, where he you assume will just be even more of a bit part player than he was at Wolves, the right move for him? You know, perhaps not. But uh, yeah, I, I for one will will miss seeing him more regularly uh, now that he's uh, now that he's leaving England, albeit only on loan. Mm, brilliant to watch, but but brilliant as a footballer, Daniel. What's your take on Traore? Well, uh, the reality is is that that Wolves were, with the contract situation, are are not desperately unhappy to lose him. And and if if he does end up leaving, to go anywhere for thirty five million, they will be pretty happy with that. Uh, and yet, you know, it kind of sums up Traore that he's moving from Wolves, albeit in a very good state, to Barcelona, albeit in a, a you know a fairly um, panicky emergency state it's still an, an extraordinary move for a for a loan deal if you'd have been told 10 years ago that Wolves were loaning players to Barcelona it would have seemed pretty remarkable but he's a he is a <laughs> remarkable footballer he is also an incredibly frustrating footballer and and I think it's it's not particularly controversial to say that that most football managers um they don't want to starve the creativity out of players, but they also like to control the controllables. And with Traore, you just get a sense there aren't quite enough controllables for a manager, for plenty of managers to get their heads around. And that that might make him a brilliant impact substitute at Barcelona. I'm not sure if it does any more than that. Mm. 160 Premier League appearances. Do you know how many goals in those 160 appearances? It's not many. Three. <laughs> eight. Eight, yeah, it but- was eight. But I would recommend, this tees me up quite well, because Tim Spears, the Athletics Wolves correspondent, wrote a really good piece, a kind of farewell Traore piece. And he he does make the point that, you know, for fans and 
those watching sometimes the numbers don't really tell the story and, and how he felt like like to, what Tom was saying you know how he made supporters feel the excitement he generated that buzz the uniqueness I mean that was a word that's you know Nuno used to constantly call him unique and and he is I mean and you remember those players you and and yes the goals and assists are what define most players but there are also so many moments with him that I think a lot of Wolves fans will never forget him, you know, just as Tom was saying, taking on three or four players and doing that against Liverpool, against City, making these, you know, really polished players who, because they have managers, as Daniel says, who like to control the controllables, suddenly they're up against this wrecking ball and they just, they're out of their comfort zone. And it's quite rare to see elite footballers out of their comfort zone in that way. And he is someone who's quite unusual in that he can do that. Bad news as well for the um, baby oil salesman uh, and indeed salesman <laughs> of the Wolverhampton area uh, who will have to make up that shortfall as best they can for the next All six right. months at least. Find some other uses for their product. Well, as Triary departs, uh, next up, let's discuss a big name who's coming into the Premier League up at Newcastle. We all enjoy the sport we call the beautiful game. But since I've retired... I've discovered an ugly, even darker side to the sport we love. Join me as Jamie Redknapp investigates. Thanks, Jamie. We'll take it from here. Join Jamie Redknapp for Jamie Investigates, the football mockumentary series. Watch on Paddy Power's Twitter. This week, Jamie Investigates, Twitter trolls. Do you know the truth? Paddy Power. 18plusbegambleaware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Tom Williams, we do talk about Bruno. Bruno Guimaraes, who's joined Newcastle from Lyon for €40 million. Euros. Much I think it's actually more. I think it's fifty it million euros. Well, fifty, 50? million with with the the fee that Leon announced was fifty million, including bonuses. Fifty point one million euros, All to right. be exact, including bonuses. Why, why is everyone getting so very excited about this player? Because he's brilliant. Uh, he's an absolutely brilliant footballer. He's a very well-rounded central midfield organizer. He's got great feet. Uh, he's a brilliant passer of the ball. Uh, he's got a great engine. Um, he he does pretty much everything you could ask of a, a dip a, a deep lying uh, central midfielder. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's a curious move in that you know he's he's joining a, a relegation battle uh, and he, he's joining a, a team that is being pieced together slightly frantically with with all these new additions during the January transfer window. But yeah, I mean, I think he has the potential to be. An absolutely exceptional signing. Um, he's a, a former a former futsal player, so despite the fact he's he's quite a rugged player in terms of his physicality and you know the amount of tackles uh, he pulls off in a game, he's got lovely feet. Sort of you know he's forever kind of rolling the ball around using the sole of his foot, slips away from challenges, uh, and yeah, a, a really great player to watch. And also I think worth flagging that a very sort of dedicated professional off the pitch as well. So when when we all went into to lockdown uh, a couple of years ago, he'd only just arrived um, in uh, in France, uh, and he used 
that unexpected free time to learn French. And by the time the French football season partially resumed, he'd gone from not speaking a word of French to being a fluent French speaker. And he was giving broadcast interviews and attending press conferences speaking French um, you know, within within five, six, seven months of, of arriving, which which I thought was pretty impressive. And, and that served to to really endear him to the Lyon fans. He was really popular with them right from the beginning. Uh, he put a very uh, eloquent and, and seemingly quite heartfelt message on his, his social media profiles over the past couple of days to to say goodbye to, to people at Lyon and, and, and to say what a, what a special club it was and how they'd always have a, a place in his heart. So I can see him being someone who will who want to sort of you know, find kind of common ground with Newcastle fans as quickly as possible, find out about the club, find out about what, what makes people um, in that part of the world tick. Uh, and if his performances with Leon or anything to go by, he, he should slot in really quickly um, and, and he should make them a much better team. All right. He's even now on his Duolingo practising his Huawei the lads. Um, right, got got that out the way. Well, hopefully, uh, he'll, he'll prove, <laughs> hopefully he'll prove to be one of those, all of those foreign players who, who learns the local lingo so perfectly that they even pick up uh, the regional accent. What's the name right. of that kid? Well, Julio Giordio, the um, like Julio Giordio thing. But there's a character. guy at Newcastle, and we've spoken about him on the pod before because I'm obsessed by him. And he's he, he's Scandinavian, Mol- I think. Jan Molby for me is, is Jan Molby was Jan Molby was the famous one. But there's a guy. I'll have to look it up. There's a guy at Newcastle, and I think he was it's in like, the Craft, youth team. It? It's not Emil. Oh, Craft, I know who you're else. talking about. Yeah, who was and he that? speaks. Oh, Sorensen. Elias Sorensen. Elias Sorensen, who speaks fantastic English, but with a really thick Geordie accent, and it is just. It's just a treat listening yeah, to him exactly. listening to him talk. Obviously, I wasn't in his plans this season in, uh, at Newcastle, so he wants to send me on loan to play men's football elsewhere, and then hopefully I'll be ready for for the next season. The gaffer is, is tough. He'll, he'll tell you if you doesn't if you don't work hard. So he said he said work hard and work your work your socks off every day, and hopefully you'll get some goals and you should be fine. There's that magical moment as well where um, Roberto Martinez, while Everton manager, talks about a sense that I have. He's just talking quite normally and just drops in this, this sort of scouse centred half. I don't know who he's talking about. But it's, it's, it's wonderful stuff. Mm. At Newcastle uh, also, have they now confirmed the signing of the extremely large Dan Byrne from Brighton for 30 million? Has that gone through? Not confirmed yet, but that is going to go through. Uh, and to also get some more of our Tom Williams league and loving, they they reportedly going back in for Hugo Ekatike. So um, yeah, it could be. Where a, does he play? A busy, it, he's a striker. It could be a busy week for Tom no, Williams. Which club? Which be, club? Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, Ram. Six out of ten, Tom. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not. I've heard. I've heard worse. So yeah, it, it, uh, he plays for the French club with the most unpronounceable name, perhaps in all of football. Uh, Hans. Um, just, I, mean, I suppose unpronounceable in the sense that it, it, you, it sounds so different to what it looks like. It looks like Reims and it's pronounced Hans. Right, probably for the best, actually. But, uh, you, you, I mean, no, just thinking that in terms of unpronounceability, you can't get much better than uh, one of the teams, for example, that your Colwyn Bay were facing this weekend. Well, yeah, I suppose, yeah, if you're not a Welsh, if you're not a Welsh speaker, Llangevny and Llanedlois can be, uh, can be tricky. Um, but yeah, Ugo uh, Ekiteke, really exciting player. My my slight fear about the potential of him moving at the moment is that he's played very little top-level football. He only broke into the Haas team at the start of the season and he's been brilliant. I mean, he looks exceptional. Uh, he doesn't turn 20 until uh, June, so he's still very young, very callow. I'd hate to see him make a big move and then just sit on the bench and not... Uh, you know, continue on what is a really exciting trajectory. Um, but he is, 
a sort of tall, slender, very languid player. In terms of his 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 movement and his gait and the way that he addresses the ball, the, the player who he reminds me of, and this, I'm conscious this is a really unhelpful comparison, but I'm, I'm talking purely in physical terms here, is Zidane. He has that same languidness, the way he sort of rolls around the pitch, mm. nudges the ball forward with the outside of his right foot, darts in between challenges. But I mean, he's, he's a goal scorer. You know, his, his movement in the box is exceptional. Very good at kind of getting across the man at, at the near post and, you know, sort of get, getting a flick on the ball. Looks to have a huge amount of, of, of self-belief as well. Really exciting player to watch. I think he's got eight goals and and a handful of assists this season in, in a team of Hans who, who don't score a huge amount of goals. So huge potential, very exciting, a really stylish player. But I my I think that the caveat, that the slight fear is that he has not yet had a full season of, of top-level football. Um, and as a consequence, that this feels quite early, uh, you know, for all, the, for all the ability, for all the potential that he undoubtedly has. All right, still the new Zidane. There's your, your pull quote. <laughs> This week, Newcastle, who uh, previously got uh, Chris Wood, of course, from Burnley and Burnley, are lining up again. Not sure if this has been confirmed yet. A move for the Dutch international Vote Weghorst from Wolfsburg, who is a proper unit as well. He's six foot six. It's, uh, I mean, fairly incredible Dyson. It, it, it almost sounds like he's used a filter search to find Weghorst. <laughs> um, uh, yes, six foot six, Peter Crouch esque, uh, and yeah, if you were trying to replace Chris Woods, why not do someone that's three inches taller? I remember Jose Mourinho was a fan of uh, of Vercors when he was Spurs manager, which is you know another guy who likes those big, physical, imposing attackers. Seventy goals in three and a half seasons, and are not always fully functional. Wolfsburg, so very impressive numbers. Uh, is Christian Eriksen is that confirmed yet for Brentford? Yeah, it is confirmed. Yeah, simultaneously the most heartwarming news of deadline day, and also the most kind of underwhelmingly low rent announcement video, uh, because Ericsson isn't actually in it at any point. It's just pictures of him, and mm. then a really crude Photoshop job uh, as like the climax. But that aside, obviously wonderful news. Um, you know, to think that he's you know he's going to be back playing in the Premier League. So soon after, you know, the, the, the absolute nightmare of, of what happened last summer uh, in, in, in front of the eyes of, of the world is, is, is wonderful. Um, and uh, yeah, be, be great to see him on the pitch again. Brilliant. All right. Well, that's enough transfers for now. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday to round up all of the deadline day surprises and shocks and twists. And next up, let's catch up a little bit more on the AFCON quarterfinals before we head off across the Atlantic. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which will come in handy when Mikel Arteta finally bends the process altogether. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Other T's and C's apply and please gamble responsibly. Daniel, how many days are you into your sojourn in Cameroon then? This is day five of 14, 15, 11, 12, depending on the vagaries of flights in and out of Morocco and whether you can get home or not. Right. OK. And what's been your your overriding uh, impression so far? Because is, is this your first AFCON? Yes, this is my first AFCON. Yeah. I, I mean, I suppose in a way you, your stereotypes, very positive stereotypes about this tournament are, are basically doubled down on in the first... 15 minutes of watching your first game, which was Cameroon Gambia, and it was a, an extraordinary atmosphere. The Vivizelas were were ridiculously loud. The atmosphere was ridiculously frantic. Um, there were, thankfully, after the the tragedy the Monday before, the game was was managed incredibly well, which is is, is really positive. And yeah, the the noise, uh, the Cameroon Gambia game to me was really special uh, because as I, as I wrote in the piece, it's very rare that the, the cheer for a second goal is demonstrably louder than the cheer for a first goal. Normally the first goal is, you know, gets people the most excited. But I think because of the, the kind of angst of this nation, they knew they were favourites to this game. They knew they wanted to face a Morocco or Egypt in a semi-final and really have a go at a, a big North African nation. So the second goal, the relief that they knew that they had defeated Gambia because they were really fearful of an upset um, was was something else. It really was. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's, it's been brilliant so far. I've, I've loved it. I can see why people get the, the kind of AFCON buzz and the AFCON addiction and, and come back again and again. Well, you've got two big semifinals coming up this week. Thursday, it is Cameroon against Egypt. Egypt, who may be using their third choice keeper. Is that right? For, for this yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, the the one of the many farces of that second half was the fact that that Egypt's second choice goalkeeper received three different periods of of treatment from the physio on the same injury, which I don't think I've ever seen before. And it took up a period of about twelve minutes, and then eventually that came off the, for the fourth time after getting treatment, and there were five minutes added on at the end, which you know maybe Egypt think they did their job perfectly in that regard. But yes, it may well be that we see Mohamed Sobi, the the Egyptian third choice goalkeeper, playing in goal because numbers one and two are are currently injured. Mm. Do you think that'll be a better game than the Morocco one? I think generally at this tournament, and this is this is very uh, a kind of wide ranging wild conclusion but when north african teams meet they tend to be quite um yeah they tend to be quite cagey and when sub-saharan african teams meet the, the same can happen cameroon wanted 
to play a big North African team in the semi-final. It will be a fascinating mix of styles. We've also got the underdog with Burkina Faso being there, mm. who are a, a great story in themselves. So this, when you add Senegal as well, it, this does feel like pretty much the perfect set of semi-finals. All right, so that's Wednesday's game in which Burkina Faso take on uh, the all-star Senegal uh, side. Burkina Faso got a remarkable record, though, at this competition. This is their their fourth semi-final at AFCON, and I think they're, they're third in the last four tournaments. How do they do it? Yeah. The, the way they are, they are African football's great overachievers at the moment. You, you're right. You're absolutely right. They um, they punch well above their weight. They use Burton Traore as almost the uh, kind of Adama Traore role of, of just give him the ball, let him see what he can do, see if he can create chances. Uh, and yeah, and it's working. I mean, they've had a they were fortunate to play a, a pretty under par, turgid Tunisia team, and I think that Senegal will be too good for them. But, yeah, just reaching the semi-finals is a huge achievement for, for Burkina Faso. Brilliant. And, of course, Senegal are African football's great underachievers. Mm. So it would feel very Senegal to end up going out to Burkina Faso, having, you know, kind of ground their way to the quarterfinals with this rock-solid defence that hadn't let any goals in and, and then sort of sparked to life late on against... Equatorial Guinea, uh, thanks in part to players coming off the bench, it, w- it would feel very Senegal for them to then immediately go out straight away. Mm. Yeah, to put that to put that into context, what Tom says about the underachieving. So, the top nine ranked African nations in FIFA's rankings coming into this tournament, Senegal are the highest in twentieth in, in the world, and then the only one of those nine never to have won Afcon. So, it really is overdue. They consider it not just a destiny, but they, you know, Aliou Cisse is, is the coach, and he was in that two thousand and two team and. The players have been very open to say, you know, if we if we don't win this tournament, the coach is going. Like, there's so much pressure on him to do this. We have to win this tournament. And then they go straight from this into a, a World Cup playoff against Egypt, uh, two-legged in March. So they potentially do that either as AFCON champions with their tails up or, uh, and clearly the way the semifinals are set up, they may well mm. play Egypt in the, in the final as well. So it's, mm. it's a huge, huge month for, for Egypt and Senegal. Mo Salah. And Sadio Mane facing each other potentially in two massive games. Crikey. All right, looking forward to those games, uh, Daniel. Speaking of World Cup qualifiers, next up, let's check in on events over in the Americas and the remarkable story of Canada. Totally Football League show is out today, listener, if you fancy a bit of that. It's going to be an exciting one as well as they focus on some huge scorelines in League One. Sunderland losing 6-0 at Bolton and promptly uh, firing their manager, Lee Johnson. Their next managerial appointment will be their 11th in the last nine years. Also with a big win, Oxford, who had a 7-2 victory at Gillingham. Cameron Brannigan scoring not one, not two, not three, but four penalties. Duncan Alexander points out, that's more penalties on his own in one game than 78 of the 92 league clubs have done this season. Remarkable. It's kind of a reverse Martin Palermo. Mm. Well, I was going to say, Martin Palermo missing the three penalties. That's the only player I can think of who's ever mm. even taken three penalties in a game. And he's, of course, remembered for having missed them all. So to yeah. take four and score them all, chapeau. Yeah, mm. I always think it must be so hard even taking a second one, not mm. psyching yourself out. By the time you're in your third or fourth, 
Man, the psychology of it. I think, yeah, exactly. Mind games. Yeah. How you I've don't actually, second I, guess yourself. I've not seen the pens. Did he? Do, uh, do we know what sort of pens they were? Did he? Did he mix it up? Did he? Imagine you took the same four penalties. <laughs> That'd be great, wouldn't it? Like, do you remember the '94 FA Cup final? Cantona scored two penalties yeah. against Dimitri Karin, and they were identical. And Karin was clearly furious. After the second one went in, he sort of springs up off the ground and you can see his rage at the thought that he's been hoodwinked by the by an identical penalty. Because doesn't Cantona just roll it as well quite gently? Rolls it bottom yeah. left. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But kind of foreshadowing the uh, Jorginho Hazard mm. slight piss taking mm. that they're so confident the keeper's gone the wrong way, they can just caress it. Yes. Yeah, because Can- Cantona was a sort of deceive the keeper, send him the wrong way, but without any of the kind of modern bells and whistles of the little jump or the little step, it was just more in the more in the eyes, mm. the, the swagger of the mind. Ma- magnificent. Yeah. Well, if you, Tom, I advise you to listen to the Totally Football League show where they undoubtedly will break down exactly how Cameron Brannigan got his. Do not just ever- watch them. Yeah, well, or watch them at the same time. Perhaps get it up on. A video sharing uh, platform. Uh, now, football this week away from AFCON. You've got Paris Saint-Germain taking on Nice on Monday night. Is that a big deal, Tom? That's in the, the last 16 of the Coupe de France. Uh, well, yes, it is. Uh, Lionel Messi will be making his comeback um, after a, a COVID infection delayed his return uh, after the Christmas break. Um, Sergio Ramos is injured again, uh, mm. which is bad news for PSG with... His old club, Real Madrid, uh, looming on the horizon in the Champions League. Neymar's still out. Jorginho Wijnaldum's still out. They've got players away at the Africa Cup of Nations. They've got players involved in World Cup qualifiers um, in uh, South America. Um, and Nice are second in uh, in Liga and now backed by the the, the, the millions of, of Ineos are, are tipped to sort of become PSG's long-term rivals. Um, I'm not sure I could necessarily recommend this as one to watch, though, because I was at the part they pronounced when PSG last played Nice uh, at the beginning of December, and it was one of the worst games of football I've ever seen in my life. Nil-nil. Crikey. Uh, it, yeah. Uh, instantly more forgettable than Colwyn Bay nil uh, at Langevny Town nil at the weekend. <laughs> uh, just as... Evidence that not all nil-nils are created equal. And another line from the Coupe de France over the weekend, that the shock of the round so far was Bergerac from the National Deux, so the fourth tier of French football, uh, knocking out Saint-Étienne, um, who are, of course, one of the, the grand old names of French football, uh, albeit currently rock bottom of mm. Liga. So they can now focus all their efforts on uh, attempting to avoid the drop now they're out of the cup. Remarkable. All right. Also coming up this week in Scotland, Celtic host Rangers, having reduced the gap between those two teams to just two points this weekend. So a win at Celtic Park on Wednesday will see them take top spot. Dramatic. Now, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, over on the other side of the Atlantic, it's looking huge in the World Cup qualifiers in Combibol, where the top four go through automatically. Brazil and Argentina are leading the way, but currently Uruguay and Colombia are outside the leading quartet. Fifth, of course, does get the playoff, uh, the details of which are to be decided and usually gets through. But one of those two teams, as it stands, with Ecuador third and Peru fourth, one of Uruguay and Colombia could well be missing out on the World Cup. Uh, three games left in Combibol qualifying for those teams anyway. Action uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. A little bit to the north, meantime. They'll be playing in CONCACAF. 
Central and North American. They'll be playing matches Thursday with the group winner already looking sorted and seismic stuff, everybody. It's not USA and it's not Mexico, the traditional big two, but it is Canada. The Canucks indeed beating arch rivals USA on Sunday night 2-0 at the Donut Box. Woof. Well, to hear all about Sunday's big 49th parallel derby and Canada's prospects in Qatar, uh, having only been to one tournament once before, losing all three games and failing to score even a single goal. That was Mexico 86. Let's hear now from Joshua Cloak, who was at the Tim Hortons field on Sunday. The ball holds up. He's going to take it himself. Joshua, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Not at all, not at all. It's been uh, an emotional uh, night for you after Sunday night's 2-0 victory. Yeah, um, definitely one of the more memorable games in, in Canadian men's national team soccer history. And, and perhaps the bar is pretty low, uh, considering where the men's team has been, you know, for well over a generation. But there is, it just game by game through this qualifying cycle, there is a, a belief within the country that, that this team is going to do something, you know, very, very special. And even though the, the stadium was, I mean, they said it was half full, it felt bigger than that. There's a lot of COVID regulations still here in Ontario. Um, you know, the, the 12,000 fans in attendance made it seem like there were a lot more people there. And Certainly one of the, like I said, uh, a memorable night. Mm. Well, Canada yet to lose a, a game in, in these World Cup qualifications so far. But a match against USA, how, how big a deal is that for Canadian fans? Well, it's big for two reasons. First of all, practically, right, the United States was right behind Canada in the table, right? So you want that win to just kind of buy yourself that breathing room um, as you still have, you know, three of their next four games are on the road. Um, so I think even the most you know hardened Canadian soccer fan would say they're not there yet. So it was important there. But you know I think Canada has long had a, a real underdog mentality um, within their men's national team. They would get kind of pushed around by you know the American and Mexican teams for years, years and years. Um, but but when you watch this game yesterday, Canada acted like the bullies on the pitch. They were the aggressors physically. You know, when they did have the ball, they punished the Americans in transition, really, really quick transition play. And I think that matters to a lot of players. You had Milan, Borjan, the team's goalkeeper, who said that, you know, for years, he knew that when the Americans came to play Canada, they wouldn't take them seriously. But he said, and I quote, but now the Americans are scared of us. And so I think that change in attitude, that change in mentality is really having a ripple effect, not just within the team, but you know, within the entire country that is really taking this men's national team very seriously. Well, these are heady times for, for soccer in, in Canada. Uh, top of the Conmebol qualifying group with a five-point lead over fourth place. You've deposed the traditional big two, unbeaten, as I say, in qualifying. You, you're co-host of the World Cup after this. You've just got Lorenzo Insigne signed up for Toronto. So is soccer fever really gripping the nation now? 
Yeah, and you know what? Credit as well to the women's national team who, after uh, bronze medals at the 2012 and 2016 Olympics, won the Olympic gold medal this summer, um, or sorry, the summer of 2021. And I think that really started, um, again, more of this kind of belief that, that, you know, after years and years of being told, and it's true, you know, for a generation, more children played soccer than any other sport in Canada, far more than hockey. I, I mean, I, th- I think we know that around the world we're kind of known as an ice hockey nation, um, and that's great. Uh, but, you know, more kids played soccer, and that's for a variety of reasons. It's an economical game to play. There is a serious a- and welcomed multicultural and diverse you know, population within Canada that has been fueled by years and years of rising immigration numbers. Um, and I think that the men's and women's national team, and, and right now the men's national team embodies that, right? You look at this men's national team, it's made up of immigrants, it's made up of refugees, it's made up of players of color. And I think that's why the country is kind of really starting to get behind this team because they look, can look at it and say, I, you know, I can see myself in this national team. There's a lot more pride. And, you know, John Herdeman, the men's national team coach, something he's been kind of preaching a lot lately is, you know, how excited he and the rest of the team would be to go to the World Cup because that would mean that, you know, for the first time, in a, again, in a generation, if you're a Canadian soccer fan, you don't have to pull on your Italian national team shirt or, or your Dutch national team shirt. You know, you can wear that national team jersey with a lot of pride. And it sounds kind of hokey and sentimental, but I think it, it matters to a lot of people here. Absolutely, especially because your Italian national team shirt may not even be any use come uh, the next World Cup. Also true. Are you old enough to remember the previous time that Canada went to a World Cup? I am not, though I have done my fair share of research about it. The 1986 team, the one that you referenced, was, you know, a tale of, of real, real underdogs, a team that probably had no you know, right to be at the World Cup, considering there were some semi-pro and amateur players in the squad, right? And this was a team with, you know, almost no kind of attacking talent. And so the head coach, Tony Waiters, tries to turn this team into the most physically fit team at the World Cup. He spends most of his time leading up to the World Cup just running the team, running mountains. He took, you know, he takes them to, to mountainous terrains in Canada to train so they'll be ready for the Mexico kind of altitude and they go there and even though they give France a really good go in the first game they lose and they lose their next two and they, they don't score a goal so Canada has been to a World Cup but has yet to score a goal so that just I think fuels this kind of emotion that is bubbling over right people are just so excited to get there and to go to the world cup obviously as well because the world cup has changed completely from 1986 it's a much more kind of culturally significant event um and so i think that's why there's just this excitement to get there um that again is is palpable Okay, well, you're going in, as it stands, very much by the front door. Because of other results, you can't sew up qualification this midweek. But with, what is it, a five-point lead over fourth spot, you're looking pretty good. And and the recent results as well, coming the 2-0 win away in Honduras and then the victory over the USA on Sunday, coming without probably Canada's biggest star, Alfonso Davies. I would even argue Canada's best two players, Stefan Estacchio, who just finished a transfer to, to FC Porto in, in Portugal. Um, and that was the question coming into this window. How would Canada do without Alfonso Davies? But you look at the rest of this team, you have Jonathan David, who's mm. one of the most sought after strikers. Um, 
He had a crucial goal against Honduras. Kyle Lahren, who's had a few loved, really um, strong seasons. I loved Alfonso Davies' commentary on that, by the way, on his uh, Twitch feed, I think it was. Oh, my days, what a touch! Oh, what a golazo! Well, this is part of what makes this Canadian team, you know, kind of so endearing is they're, they're fun. They're young. They're fun. They're not, you know, you watch them against the Americans yesterday. The Americans look frustrated. The pressure of the moment, having not qualified for 2018, seems to be getting to them. But, but Canada is playing with this kind of liberated attitude, right? They're, they're, they're not worried about not having been there since 1986. This is a team that again is is young and fun they've embraced social media and yeah watching alfonso davies let out his emotions um it's it's really it's contagious it's hard not to like this men's national team absolutely all right so uh, el salvador coming up on thursday are you going along to that game i'm not i've i've kind of put my sights forward on being there for when they qualify so you know tickets are probably going to be booked for costa rica and and panama today um because, you know, you have to be there for when they qualify, right? Right, absolutely. Well, for us, we're really looking forward, fingers crossed, to, to seeing uh, the Canucks. What, what, what's the, uh, the nickname? Is it Canucks? Is it Les Rouges? What, what would be the, 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 usual, the accepted uh, uh, nomenclature? I, I would refrain from calling them Canucks, and there's, there's a free one for you. Um, the Canucks are also a name of, of a hockey team in, mm. in Canada that is going through some some tough times. Um, I think Les Rouge is really a that's kind of the hipster term. I think that's okay. the one that yeah that that's the one that like the the long suffering fans of this team have been using for a while now. So I think if you were to to show up in Canada this summer and, and claim to be a fan of Les Rouge, you might get a few strange looks, but those in the know would appreciate it. Joshua Cloak. In the cloakroom, I, I imagine, although I didn't ask. A- anyway, there we go. Uh, that's it for today's Totally Football Show. Charlie, Tom and Daniel, I hope that's been edifying. I, I know it has for me. What Have you got big plans for the rest of this week? Well, you know, today's all about transfers and then it'll right. be quite nice get, you know, going back to watching some, some games. Absolutely, absolutely. Keep across all the latest transfer news uh, via Charlie and his cohorts at The Athletic. Uh, Tom, uh, what will you be up to? It's quite an interesting week football-wise. There's lots of different sort of uh, the matches from all sorts of different tournaments. There's a bit of Coupe de France, a bit of Africa Cup of Nations, yeah. and obviously FA Cup at the weekend. Mm. I, I quite like these little, these little breaks from the Prem. I think it does you good to have a bit of time to, you know, just catch your breath. A palate cleanser. Exactly. exactly. All right. Well, Daniel, as uh, as you mentioned, you'll be doing uh, those AFCON semi-finals. So best of luck to everybody. Listener, you too do join us again on Thursday. For now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.